0: Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Growing up in my house, we had a little ceramic nativity scene that sat on our coffee table every year. I'm I'm betting if you grew up in church, you probably had a nativity scene somewhere in your house this time of year. Nativity scene is there to remind us of the real message of the holiday. It's how we, we recognize kind of the significance when Jesus entered the world. But, you know, I've always kind of wondered, is that really what it looked like that night in Bethlehem? Nativity scenes are so neat and orderly and all the characters look so calm and happy. It's like a a scene from a movie. It's what we see in our heads. I got a picture here of how I think we, we typically view the night that Jesus was born. This is what most people see, right? It's a beautiful picture. No offense to the artist, but I think that's kind of the problem. (laughs) It's too beautiful. Everyone looks so nice and clean, not like they've been traveling in a desert country and sleeping in a barn. You guys been in a barn before? It's not comfy and cozy like this picture makes it seem. It stinks. There are flies and other things that stink that I won't get into today. And look at how put together everyone is. Like Mary and Joseph do not look like the parents of a newborn baby. Mary does not look like she just had a natural birth on her own, away from home, in a stable. (laughs) Joseph doesn't look like a young guy who just helped deliver a baby to a woman he wasn't even married to yet. (laughs) And how about those angels? They look like flying babies. (laughs) Did you know in Scripture when people see angels, when the shepherds saw the angels, the typical response is to collapse in terror? Like the angels always have to tell the people they appear to, hey, don't freak out. Don't be afraid. Angels are spoken of as soldiers in the army of God, not flying babies. Then the animals. Look, I'm from Tennessee, and I'm not much of a country boy, but I've been around some animals. At the least, I've been to the Deanna Rose farmstead. (laughs) Those animals are way too clean and way too calm. And don't get me started on the wise men who were not actually at the stable on the night Jesus was born. They came later. Or the glowing halos. Or the perfectly happy newborn baby Jesus. I just think this is probably not a very accurate portrait of the scene on that night. I could be wrong. But I think if we had been there on that first Christmas night, I don't think we would have wanted to paint a picture of it. The real nativity scene was real. These were real people. With real emotions and real bizarre circumstances. It was messy, smelly, and chaotic. And when you consider that this is the very way God designed for his own son to enter into the world, it's completely unassuming. That's the title of our final Advent message, Behold the Unassuming. We're going to look at our, our final Christmas text from the Gospel of Luke. And this is the one that everyone knows. Thank you, Charlie Brown. And because we're so familiar with it, and because we see nativity scenes everywhere this time of year, we really need to read this text this morning with fresh eyes. Let's look and see what Luke actually tells us, and most importantly, what it means for us today. So let me invite you, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word of God? We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Luke wrote, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. As it had been told them, and at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. You can be seated. As we walk through this famous passage this morning, I want us to behold two unassuming aspects of this story. Here's the first. Number one, behold the unassuming path of mercy. Let's take a look first at the path that God chose to bring his son Jesus into the world. Notice I said the path that God chose. As we've seen throughout this entire Advent series, Luke is, is making clear that these events taking place are all happening according to God's plan. None of this is by accident or by coincidence, but this is precisely the way that God designed it all to happen. And that's part of the strangeness of the Christmas story. Because if God had called me and asked me my opinion on how the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, should come into the world to save it, I might have suggested something different. I might have suggested, you know, some laser lights, some smoke machines, uh, pyrotechnics, Carl Kincaid on the saxophone playing Eye of the Tiger. I would have had a huge crowd. Do you know that one? He could work it out. And i have a huge crowd. I mean, there'd be stadiums full of people. It would have been a really big spectacle. I mean, this is Jesus, right? It would have been this grand thing. And that's why I had no say in the matter. (laughs) Because God chose to do things the opposite of how we might have done it. He took a path that was completely unassuming and ordinary. And we see that throughout the whole story. Let's start out wide and then kind of zoom in as we go. First off, God chose for his son to be born in the city of Bethlehem. This was one of the last cities that someone would have chosen for the birthplace of a king. This was not a big town or a wealthy or a popular, well-known community. The prophet Micah, who everyone knows was the best prophet ever, uh, he said this in Micah 5.2. Jeremy read it. He said, but you, O Bethlehem of, of Father, how would you say that? That's a really hard word. O Bethlehem of Father, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So the Old Testament tells us Bethlehem was a really insignificant place, yet this is where they prophesied Jesus would be born. This affirms the idea God chose for his son to be born in that city. Only one problem. Mary and Joseph didn't live there. They lived in Nazareth. How would Jesus be born in Bethlehem according to the prophecy if his parents were in Nazareth? That's where the census came in. Caesar wanted to register the people. He wanted to shake them down for more money, more tax money. And since Joseph's family lineage ran through Bethlehem, he had to pack up and take Mary, who was quite pregnant at the time, on a journey. A journey that I'm guessing they were not overly thrilled about. Traveling in the first century world was much different than it is for us today. You know, cars, planes, trains. And with Mary being pregnant, I'm thinking this was not part of their plan. But as we saw in Micah, it was the plan of God. For his son to be born in an unassuming city, Bethlehem. And he used these unforeseen circumstances to make that happen. He used a a greedy political decision by a godless ruler to serve his very purposes of salvation. Let's zoom in a little closer on the very place that Jesus was born. This is where we often like to fill in the gaps of the story a bit. In our minds, and in the the modern versions, we picture Mary and Joseph finally make it to Bethlehem, and they go to the local Marriott, and there are no rooms left, right? They try to get an Airbnb, but the Wi-Fi is kind of spotty. And so the innkeeper comes out, and he's this really angry, terrible guy who yells at him, just get off my property. And so they wander around. They're desperate until they find this perfectly set up stable in the middle of a field with lights and comfy hay, and it's all perfect, and Jesus is born, yay. But let's look at what Luke actually tells us. He only gives us two verses. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. That's it. That's it. And notice verse what's not mentioned. We don't read of an innkeeper or a stable or even animals. There's not even a little drummer boy. How dare they ruin the songs. So where was Jesus born? Well, to be honest, we don't know as much as we'd like to, but we do have two clues. First, we see that there was no room in the inn. That word inn, and we hear that and we think of hotels and bed and breakfasts, but that obviously was not the way people lodged in the first century. Those didn't really exist. Another way to translate that word inn is guest room. So in this time period, when someone traveled and needed a place to stay, usually they would stay with family or with someone who had a home big enough for a space dedicated to guests. So it's likely that with the census going on and all the people traveling, that what happened was <clears throat> Joseph's family had no more rooms available for Mary and Joseph to stay and They were full. And at this point, they ended up somewhere near where animals were kept. We know that because of our second clue, that word, manger. Mangers have become so common in our minds around Christmas time that we forget a manger was not a normal place to lay a newborn baby. A manger was a feeding trough for animals. They were not very clean and certainly not very comfortable. Many homes in this time had lower levels or separate space attached to their home where they kept their livestock. And it's likely that Jesus was born in a place like that. Or it could have been a separate stable. It could have even been a cave. That's another place where animals were kept. So you don't have to run home and throw away your nativity scene. Just get rid of the wise men, okay? Uh, No, I'm, I'm kidding, kidding. Regardless of what we don't know, here's what we do know for sure. This was an unassuming place for the birth of our Savior. There was no red carpet, no welcoming committee, no fancy penthouse suite or medical technology It wasn't even respectable by first century standards. Jesus was left without a place for a proper birth. His mother likely delivering him in the dirt and hay. And he was laid in this messy, smelly feeding trough. That's where God planned for his own son to be born and laid to sleep on his first night on earth. Can you believe that? Let's zoom in even closer on the infant himself. In order for God to save us, he chose to become one of us. And in order to become one of us, he chose to be born like us. But this, too, was a very unlikely route for God to take. Infants in this time period were completely helpless and devalued by society. In the first century world, one in four children died during their first year of life. Up to half of all children born in this time did not even make it to their 10th birthday. So for Jesus to be born in this time, in this way, to these people, there wasn't much certainty he would even live, much less change the world. And yet again, this was the path that God chose to take to bring mercy into the world. Jesus was not born in a castle or a palace with a big party or celebration or anyone to even notice. He was born in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehem, in a stable as a helpless infant. This was the unassuming path of mercy. Here's the second unassuming aspect of the story for us to behold. Number two, behold the unassuming people of mercy. Let's think for a second about the people God chose to be the parents of Jesus. We've talked some about Mary throughout this series and how she was young, most likely the age of a teenager. We also know that Joseph was not a powerful or well-connected person either. In fact, it's Quite certain that Joseph and Mary were poor. When they go to the temple later in Luke chapter 2 to dedicate and offer a sacrifice for Jesus, they offer two pigeons. What's up with that? Well, the Old Testament law tells us this was allowed only for people who could not afford to buy a lamb, which was a better sacrifice. So Mary and Joseph, they didn't have the sort of prestige or power or money that we might expect from the parents of a king They were simple, modest, unknown by society, and yet God chose them to be the parents of his son. In the second section of this passage, Luke tells us about the very first people to hear about the birth of Christ, to see him with their own eyes. Who is it? Is it the powerful rulers of the day, the government officials, Caesar and Herod? Is it the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees who knew God the best and the high priest? No, of all the people God could have announced the birth of Christ to, he chose to tell first a group of shepherds. And now shepherds have come; uh, they become pretty normal for us in this story. We see them in Christmas plays and nativity scenes. They're always you know, huddled up with their robes and their staffs. But the shepherds should be surprising to us. See, when we think of shepherds, we think of these heroic guys in the Old Testament like David. But by the time the first century rolled around, shepherds had earned a bad reputation. They were on the lowest rung of society. They were poor, filthy, and despised, right along with tax collectors and others who were deemed unclean. They had a reputation for being dishonest and immoral. Some shepherds would allow their flocks to graze on the land of others without permission. Some shepherds would steal from their owners' flocks without them knowing. Because of this, they were not even admitted into court as valid witnesses. People thought so poorly of shepherds in this time that, listen to this, in a Jewish writing written then, it was actually said that you, if you came across a shepherd who had fallen in a pit, you were not obligated to help them out. <laughs> that's who we're talking about here. And yet look again at these verses and, and verse 8 on. It says the shepherds, they're out in, the, the same re, in that region. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. They're removed from society, away from everyone else. And that's where they get to experience the glory of the Lord. This is the same glory that previously was confined to the holy of holies in the temple. Only the priest could go in one day a year. And now it's being revealed to the least holy people you could find. And along with God's glory comes a whole host of angels praising God. Can you you just imagine this for a second? Imagine being one of these shepherds. Half asleep in the middle of a field. And then out of nowhere, boom, here's that scene. They're terrified. Yet what do they do? They obeyed. shepherds went and saw Jesus. They became the first witnesses to the miracle of God. And then they went out as missionaries, sharing what they saw. They praised and glorified God. These are the unassuming people of mercy that God used to see and announce his great plan. So let's close this morning by asking this question. Why? Why did God do it this way? Why did God send Jesus to be born in the most unlikely place to the most unlikely parents? And why did he choose to tell the most unlikely group of people who no one would likely even believe? Why such an unassuming entrance for the Savior of the world, the most important person to ever live? Here's why. Because this is the way of God. And this is so important. Guys, listen. This is really what's at the heart of the whole Christmas story. From start to finish, from Zechariah in the temple to the shepherds out in the field, God is setting the stage. He's laying a foundation to show us his heart. That he is a God who comes to us as we are. He enters into our mess and he chooses to save unassuming sinners the messed up, the broken, the can't do anything right kind of people. Those are the people he came to save, and we see it from day one. Think about how this great theme develops throughout the life of Jesus. The unassuming aspect of the story, it never goes away. Jesus lives the first 30 years of his life in obscurity. A man who was, who is God with God's power and perfection, yet he did nothing for 30 years. That's been recorded for us today. When Jesus did step on history's scene, he appeared to be just like his parents poor, unknown, and with no social or political chips to play. They said, What good could come from Nazareth? His first disciples and friends were outcasts who didn't make the cut in society. They were sinners who were deemed unworthy of God prostitutes, tax collectors, lepers, demon possessed. And then came his death. He died a poor criminal's death on a cross between two thieves. The guards who hung him, they, they gambled for his, claw, for his clothes. They mocked his bleeding body. They displayed him an open shame for everyone to see. And they took his lifeless body down and they buried him in a borrowed tomb. From birth to death, from womb to tomb, from manger to cross, Jesus lived a low and humble life. He said himself in Matthew 20, 28, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said in Mark 2, 17, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He said in Luke 19, 10, that he came to seek and save the lost. He said in John 3, 17, that he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the unassuming life and ministry of Jesus. He came to bring mercy to the least likely people, to sinners like me. And he still does the same today. God's ways have not changed. He is not a God for the powerful, the popular, the well put together, the holy, the righteous, or the religious. We have a God who pursues the unlikely, the down and out, the outcast, the broken, and the wretch. We have a God who saves sinners. And he does so in a very unassuming way. He doesn't call us to clean ourselves up first or to fix all our problems first. He doesn't ask us to, hey, follow all these rules and play the perfect part and then I'll save you. No, he simply asks us to believe, to place our faith in Jesus. That's all he wants is to come to him as we are in simple faith. And when we do, that's when we experience his mercy. Mercy means God doesn't give us the judgment we deserve for our sin, but instead we're forgiven. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we become a new person. We're changed from the inside out, and we behold the unassuming. So let's make a commitment today, as we celebrate Christmas this week, to not miss the heart of the story. Because to be honest, I think a lot of times we take a story that is so unassuming and humble, and we create a holiday around it that is flashy and grand. And we make this the opposite of what it's about. And I don't think we mean to. You know, we love Christmas and it should be a time of celebrating. It's exciting. And we want people to have joy this time of year. But in the process, we may unintentionally overshadow the point. We may get so lost in the consumerism and the decor that we miss the message. God came here. He came to us When we could not get to him because of our sin, he made a way. He stepped off his throne and stepped right into our mess, our brokenness, our sin. He suffered in every way we do, and he died that we might live. See, that's what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. So what can you do this week to keep that message at the heart of how you celebrate Christmas? As you spend time with your family, is there a way you can share and talk about what it means that God came to save us? As people in your workplace talk about the holidays and their plans, is there a way you can share about the hope you have this time of year and all year? As you go about the busyness of this week, is there a way you can slow down and be attentive to the hurting and broken around you? As you shop and spend money and eat all sorts of food, is there a way you can be generous to those who are in need? How can you display the heart of God, the heart of Christmas this week, and show others that the unassuming babe in a manger 2,000 years ago is the God of the universe who loves them and wants to know them? That's our call. That's our message, to be like those shepherds and to tell everybody what God has done. We've beheld what no eye had seen, but what has now been revealed in Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.